Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel Podcast. I'm Andy Mort. I'm a sound artist, songwriter and slow coach. And I want to explore life's harsher edges with a spirit of playful creativity. I love helping people see the world through the lens of their unique creative sensitivities, rising above the cynicism, bitterness and resentment that can disconnect us from ourselves, from one another and from the playful possibilities within and around us. Um, you know, I love looking for ways to tune into our sound, our unique kind of creative sound within and process life's ceaseless noise, express our creative voices and explore the contours of human potential with openness, curiosity and a shared sense of purpose. I've got a fun episode for you this week. If you're watching the video version, you'll see I have a little gift in my hand. <laughs> I'm drinking out of this uh, this new mug that was given to me by uh, this week's guest, who is uh, Ben Cowan, um, somebody that I've uh, met this year for the first time. He's a, an artist based in my hometown, Leamington Spa. Um, and he, I, I came across him at, a, at the Spark um, event at the Spa Centre. It's like a symposium for kind of local uh, creative businesses back in February uh, of this year, 2023. Um, and I heard him talking. I was like, you know, there's something here that is really resonating with me. I'd love to to meet up with Ben and, and learn a bit more about, you know, who he is and what drives him. And, you know, his creative approach and philosophy really resonated with uh, my own way of, I guess, relating to art and thinking about, you know, how to um, turn the way that we process the world into uh, something that we express into the world. Um, and so, yeah, he, he, he talks about... Um, art that makes you think that's his his thing um and i was kind of like yeah even that it's like a big thing that i'm thinking about a lot at the moment and in terms of the way that we talk about art um especially as artists like how much do you um do you talk about what you've created and the meaning that that you ascribe to it like what do you think this is about and all of that sort of stuff and um yeah the idea of art that makes you think versus art that tells you what to think um you know art that helps you learn how to think all of these things i was like yeah i'd love to to get ben on and and have a chat about what that means to him um and so we met for the first time a couple of months ago um and realized that um you know we have many formative elders um in common uh, i really like this way of him the the way he describes you know creative and and cultural figures of influence um, that are important to us in the way that we, I guess, form formulate our view of the world, um, formulate our relationship with the with uh, creative craft, with art, and all of that sort of stuff. And uh, you know, there was the several uh, the several crossover areas that we had. Um, so we talk about that in our conversation. Um, but yeah, just to introduce you to Ben before we um, tuck into the to the conversation itself, um, I'll just share what you puts on his website so he says i was away for a long time working as a disaster relief specialist in war-torn countries when i returned i found it hard to process what stood for normal life without a threat to your existence normal life is an existential threat my response has been to create art that makes people think but also laugh my ideas are rendered digitally either in the form of exhibition pieces gicle prints or finding their natural home in homeware and clothing, ideas worth wearing. Like his idols Shepherd Fairy and Banksy, 
Ben wants to take art into the public domain and to start conversations about key issues of the day. He cites as examples the dark art of marketing, people's conspicuous consumption habits, and our contemporary obsession with smartphones. Comic heroes like Bill Hicks and Chris Morris inspire him to challenge the status quo. He suggests a few strong words softly spoken or iconic imagery subverted can jerk people out of a state of numbness. It could be an exhibition chin-scratcher or a statement t-shirt. To me, it doesn't matter, as long as it starts conversations. We are either comfortably or uncomfortably numbed by modern life. Inhale, exhale, repeat. Distract, browse, watch, repeat. I am uncomfortably numb. Instead of speaking of jam jars filled with bunches of oily brushes or paint-splattered workshops, Ben says that his medium is irony, by which he explains, I subvert iconic images or phrases that for you might be familiar, so they can take on deeper, perhaps darker meaning, but it's done through a comic lens. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Ben says that he creates digital art for a digital future. The future is now. The pace of change is unprecedented. My designs try to draw on the past to peer into that future. Ben's work is inspired by pop art as well as popular culture, such as Penguin classic books, The Matrix films or Monty Python comedy. His fans might commission a design for their private wall space, but just as likely the natural home for a design might be a hoodie, a clock, as well as an art installation in a retail space. Ben explains in these different locations as the context changes, the meaning of an art piece changes. I created an ironic t-shirt definition t-shirt that deploys dramatic irony, which means that the wearer may not know that their t-shirt is ironic. Whereas the Caffeine's collection, which features Starbucks bashing coffee cup identities, might be best placed on a wall alongside caffeine sugar addicts queuing up for their fix inside an independent cafe. So yeah, I hope that's sort of wet your appetite for our conversation a little bit. Um, it was quite a long one. It was I, I can't believe how fast the time went. We were just sort of, um, yeah, once we got going, it just flowed. Um, so I hope you uh, enjoy this. I'd love to know what you um, what you take from it. If there's anything that stands out to you, um, then yeah, please do get in touch. I'll come back at the end uh, at the end of the conversation just to let you know how you can do that and uh, where you can go to um, yeah, explore more of what Ben's doing and to connect with him as well. All right, enjoy. Yeah. So he was my first in-person video podcast, mm-hmm. um, which I really enjoy. It has a very different, cause I've done a lot of like zoom conversations, things like that. It has a very different vibe when you're actually in person, mm. the, the energy is different. Absolutely. There's yeah, something else, but yeah. So, so post COVID, right? <laughs> post COVID we're, we're into that. Yeah. yeah. We actually reconnecting with human beings, which is what we're trying to do, isn't it? And, and when, Alan was on stage at um, Ignite. Um, this is in Leviton Spa, and he was talking to two, three hundred of us about placemaking and setting up this um, lit and tree pub kind of art venue from a soon-to-be-demolished, you know, pub. Mm-hmm. A huge space, 
And you've, you've uh, exhibited there, haven't you? Yeah. You've there. And it was just really inspirational. He's putting his, his money behind it. And it was just art in a, in a way that's not commodified um, as we've come to expect and need uh, in this modern era. It's something that when we talk about art and expression and how to make a living, it's a challenge, you know. But so he was, he was inspirational. And I guess we met through me uh, talking about overcoming boundaries and barriers to being an artist in the modern period. Yeah. Um, there was a film director, BBC producer, and someone in community sculpture. I mean, really inspirational people. And, um, yeah, I talked to people about that, and that's how we met, isn't it? It is, yeah. It was an incredible event. So that was the Spark event, like symposium at the Spark Centre. Council organised, yeah. Public, you know, event for, non-for-profit, really. Yeah. yeah, and free for people to attend, yeah. which was, yeah, incredible. And so, yeah, I saw your your talk um on that panel there and i was like this i need to connect with ben here because he's he's creating stuff i mean your whole thing of um art that makes you think mm-hmm. um really sort of captured my attention as a both a, a necessary thing and something that mm. resonates with me mm. as a as an artist as a musician you know i like art that makes you think mm. and not art that necessarily spoon feeds thoughts to you yeah. but just sort of is a question it just invites you into reflecting on the way mm. the way that you perceive the world and maybe you know is are there other ways of seeing yeah. things and stuff like that so that really yeah well thank you thank you and, and it really is about um uh, i suppose inspiring provoking sometimes um you know some art may offend kind of thing that people might have a reaction for me that's a good thing mm. you know positive or negative um i mean my Rock stars were stand-up comedians and guys like Bill Hicks. We connect on um, who, you know, say it's not it's not their fault. If someone's offended; they can choose to be offended. But what is important is that comedians and artists, you know, provoke and and push boundaries and that sort of thing. And I think, as you talked about, there's an issue with sort of spoon feeding, uh, an issue with sort of this is how you should think. There's there's elements of, you know, the progressive. Left, there's, you know, things we could talk about, council culture, you know. Um, oh, no, people shouldn't be allowed to say that in, in public. And I think, um, you know, I saw a comedian recently at the same venue we're talking about, and um, he was surprisingly kind of out there, Canadian um, comedian. And we had a chat afterwards at the nearby pub um, with some friends about, for me at least, the importance of comedy, the importance of um, challenging commonly held beliefs and patterns of behavior um and i think we're in danger of sometimes to going two ways bill hicks would talk about a choice between fear and love um and we do have that that choice there's the the issue of kind of polarization and edgy kind of stuff culture wars but there's also the issue of well let's say council culture just as a shorthand but just rounding off the edges of what it takes to kind of evolve evolve mm. thinking and thought over time and I think, yeah, kind of bleeding edge comedians, and many would say, well, some of the the ground that they might stand on is sort of is is flaking away, is falling away. Um, but I think we do need those to to bit of like a wedge, push into big issues, highlight them, and get people to think about them, but not to spoon feed or to preach. Is another word sometimes people use. Mm. There's an issue. This kind of like tall poppy syndrome is kind of like you put your head above the parapet and lots of people want to sort of chop it down. So issues that I might look at um, or big topics, 
I mean, I tend to stay away from environmental issues because I feel so passionately and about them. Almost don't want to make fun of them. That's something I might have to to work on. But um, I talk about um, phone obsession and online um, versus offline, um, social media. Anyway, so these are issues, and I've got one in front of us now, which yeah. is a, a parody on Instagram. <laughs> it also sort of says something about why sometimes my work isn't all that. Um, uh, it either doesn't meet a public or it's difficult to promote. Because mm-hmm. I, I take, you know, a logo, um, the Instagram logo. We've got Instaglam for listeners. Um, the subheading is selfie improvement. Um, and you've got the eye, you've got the Instagram logo in the iris, and then you've got a heavily made up kind of um, uh, eye, eye lashes, million dollar eyelashes, etc. Um, and I try, this could be tough because a lot of people use Instagram and you might be trying to sell art on Instagram. So, um, but I try and turn it around. It's kind of, I love you because you are beautiful just the way you are. I'm trying not to, to poke fun at people who use social media an awful lot for some form of self-validation. Mm-hmm. Um, but people that choose not to, people that don't walk around with a, you know, filters on their faces or posting images that aren't real in some way or somehow inauthentic, and they're connecting with people that may, they may not know, and that, that even that means of connection might be inauthentic. When we've grown up as, as apes in communities of 80 or so, and we tell stories in order to mind ourselves together. But how true are some of these stories? There's a, there's a variation on this, which is, I love you because your life isn't a highlights reel. You know, it's this idea of kind of a curated self and, and curated um, things you've done on a weekend. Um, I had a friend who was in New York for a year, and if you look at his Instagram, it was like, it was perfect. Everything was gauzy, you know, sunsets and amazing. And he came back and told me that it almost bankrupted him, and it was, yeah. <laughs> it was hell in many ways. So it just goes to show how um, sometimes it's not, not real. So I'm just bringing it back to where I started with Art Makes You Think and this kind of um, getting people to, the, to, to think about key issues using comedy, perhaps, you know, laughter is the medicine. Mm-hmm. But also try and explore um, what is the, the good life, what is the life examined, um, reflecting on patterns of human behaviour and, I might say, with phone obsession, socially acceptable madness that, that is, you know, crossing a busy road on your phone. And just hold up the mirror to the mirror world and say, is this right? Are we, are we OK with this? Uh, are our future generations going to look back and go, Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? And it, so we're surrounded by your art at the Sorry moment, about that. which is yeah. <laughs> which Just... is a joy, absolute joy. <laughs> and there is a real, there's a real playfulness to it, mm. a real, uh, you know, the the parody aspect of uh, sort of taking icons of mm. capitalism, really, like these logos that it doesn't, you know, everybody recognizes. Like I love this one. So this packaging, is, yeah, is, uh, is one of my sources of, of humour coming from Andy Warhol a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So the Marmite, the Marmite Brexit jar, um, yeah. which is yeah a beautiful combination of like to me it's it's that love it or hate it aspect exactly. of yeah. Brexit. You know the Remainers versus the Leavers, and there's yeah. no in between. It's yeah. like that, and that's how Marmite essentially sold itself. That's right. The, the ultimate Marmite subject, you either love it or you hate it. In this case, bitter extract, rich in conflict, only 52% guaranteed. So, 
Yeah, this would be very popular. Like it was 2016, 17, and I think partly because the zeitgeist and people are fed up with it already um, at, that, at that point. Um, uh, the other thing is just that it's simple. It's a simple change to the um, to, to something that is iconic. So what I tend to do that makes you think is to um, take something iconic, something you recognise, and then subvert it to mean something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's running through all of this. But I think why this might work in a way that some of my other stuff sometimes doesn't is because it's a bit simpler. The concept's quite simple. You get it quickly. So if I was an exhibition or something, then people recognise the Marmite jar and they just come over and they either love it or they hate it, but they come over anyway. And they're like, so um, what's this about? Oh, Brexit. Oh, very funny. And then if they... Because you, you sometimes just get three seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, you get three seconds for recognition, a bit like, you know, name recognition in marketing, more general logo recognition. They say, you know, five, six times you need to see a logo, you know, at a football match or somewhere before you come to buy something. Yeah. And um, so people see this and then they come in and see the rest of the stuff that might take a bit more time mm-hmm. to get. Because the other reference point for me and art is, you know, the masters and the big um, museums and the way that we stare in front of, you know, um, Van Dyke or, um, you know, Van Gogh, uh, and people will be there perhaps for 5, 10, 15 minutes, and they'll be just, oh, it'd be, it'd be like a picture of war, and it's confusing, and the way that it's um, composed emphasises that point. And it's wonderful, and it requires that amount of time. And it's also like, if it's up in your house, not a master maybe, but a, and a piece of art that gets you thinking, gets you engaged... You're living with that for maybe decades. Yeah. So it's brilliant that you've got art that really kind of gets your juices going. Um, but as a seller of art, you also need to get people in that three seconds as they pass by. And that's really challenging. Um, and I, I, lo- I like to say that the, um, the sort of, the, if you imagine painted paintings, that the flakes of paint, the flakes of meaning come off over time. Mm-hmm. That you can spend some time in front of it and maybe after, you know, months of having it, um, you'll get a new joke. You'll get a new meaning. Um, so, yeah, we can talk more about like the book book titles, but they're an example of taking something iconic, twisting them to mean something else. But then, each book title and author's um, name changed means more than hopefully just a pun. It means something about the story. And the idea of those pangolin books rather than penguin books is that they um, they say something about what's changed since the book was written. Right. So Jet Kerouac's on the road becomes on the net. Because instead of the, you know, generation of the Beats generation in the 50s and 60s, and when I was reading that book in the 90s, um, and it was a beaten up physical copy, and I was riding the rails of Amtrak, um, and having an amazing time meeting people. Um, and there's the worry that kids nowadays um, are on the net. So they're in these amazing places like, you know, the Taj Mahal, and they, they sit on... Lady dies seat and get a selfie or something. And then they just start browsing. They start browsing celebrities, whatever it might be. And someone's like, can you just move over? I want to get my selfie. Yeah, yeah. And then are they actually thinking about, you know, the, the Taj Mahal, it's made out of this luminescent kind of marble and there was going to be this black um, Taj Mahal on the opposite side of the river, you know, for the, for the Mughal who, when he died, but he built it for his, his wife. Anyway, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And people are just using this amazing spot to browse some more on mm. their phone. Yeah. You know, so this is what I mean by art that makes you think. It's about 
trying to get people to just stop for a moment. Slow coach is yeah, something yeah. is one of your monikers. So I think it's a really, really good thing. Slow food. Just because the, the, the being an artist requires us to have time for reflection. Mm. Um, and that is a luxury. But we can make time by browsing less. Mm. It's really, I, I was talking to someone recently about <clears throat> like transitional space and how um, you know, the kind of drive for convenience, which is a, a lot of technological innovation, a lot of yeah, innovation generally focuses on removing, um, removing things that are less convenient. Mm. So they'll make things happen faster, mm. um, say like fast food, for example, mm -hmm. or, um, you know, Deliveroo, mm -hmm. whatever it is that means food appears and you don't have to prepare it. Mm. Um, you know, ways of removing the kind of cleanup operations mm. around that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we were talking about how actually it's the, it's those transitional spaces between whatever you're doing and having a meal. So the preparation and the cooking that actually that's where the meaning of life is really mm. created. Yeah. Um, and that's where you have the spaces for slowing down mm. and for um, reflection and for conversations yeah, as well. Yeah. Like if you're doing that collectively with other people, it's like, that's, that's where we sort of, yeah, you re remove the planned, like, time mm. that is like, we're going to be productive and we're going to do this. It's like, it will take as long as it takes. And yeah. meanwhile, let's have a chat. Yeah. And, you know, it's... Quite. And um, so part of the slow movement is slow food, as you describe, or slow drinking. You know, the tea service is an example. Yeah. You know, tea bags is not evil, but like, you know, as a symptom of modern, rapid kind of life. And if you have... You know, uh, you know, loose tea and tea strainer, but you have like some cakes and stuff. You have a tea service and you sit down with someone and spend some quality time. You park your phones. Um, I mean, my um, niece, when she gets together with some of her friends, something I, I love that I've heard, six of them, six phones, they have a stack of them. They put them in the middle of the table. The first one to pick them up buys the next round. <laughs> that's great. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> um, how often that actually happens and stuff. But rather than have FOMO and kind of like there's, there's one phone, one person missing, and let's spend the whole time videoing ourselves to tell the person who's missing how much they're missing, you know, mm -hmm. but they're not missing anything because they're talking about the person's not being there anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Without... So, so yeah, I mean, food and convenience. Um, and this is a topic, so <laughs> I will joke all the way through this, I'm afraid, um, that um, a bit like for those that watched Rainbow um, <laughs> Children's TV um, when they were coming home from school, it's like, we know a song about that, don't we, children? Um, and similarly on like Radio 4, um, where you have Thought for the Day on the Today programme. And it'll be like two minutes of, you know, talking about something important, maybe contemporaneous. Um, and it's like, you know, you have me talking about values. And then Jesus comes in a, a minute and 20 seconds or the Vedas or, you know, Buddhals or something, you know, a story that links to their, their kind of organization. And I joke because I've got a piece of art for every you, conversation. You absolutely everything. I'm yeah, sorry about that. But, and, and, and it's also ironic that, well, I don't have any exhibitions on at the moment, so I'm surrounded by these canvases and stuff like that. But they come in different shapes and forms. And when you're talking about slow food, we've got in front of us here something called Pyramid Selling. And this is inspired by um, Andy Warhol's uh, Campbell Soup Cans. Um, and for American listeners, we've got some American examples here. <clears throat> so this is about the size of... Andy Warhol's, it's almost exactly the, the, the same size. Mm. 
And so there was 32 flavors of soup. In Tribeca, they had two lines of 16 of these. And they're all the same, except that they were um, the different flavors. And at the time, I, I understand, I think it was five out of every eight cans of soup was, were sold by Campbell's Soup. So it was mass consumerism. And he was painting his lunch. He wasn't subverting American capitalism. I consider that to be my job. <laughs> but um, he was painting his lunch. He, he drank Coca-Cola, he ate soup, he loved money, and he loved celebrities. So that's what he painted. Um, and this one is capitalism's concentrated soup. So the idea is you can have any flavor as long as it's processed. Mm-hmm. And here we've got Trump-shaped spaghetti. So in this comp- country, we have alphabet spaghetti, right? You've had that? Of course. Yes, <laughs> Andy. Um, so you can learn how to spell through eating processed food, which hooks you in straight away. But this is orange reality TV dinner for someone. Um, in Trump, we trust. And then you've got the gold in it, which is the sort of Midas' tears. And you've got some of um, his orange reality TV sort of face um, leaking out there as well. So I started with um, the Andy Warhol-inspired one. Again, to get that kind of like, recognition people see it and they go oh i know where that might have come from the next question is often kind of like do you have Andy warhol's permission and like, i think he's dead <laughs> but um people are always like i say penguin books you know the spoof covers uh, they're pangolin and they're all changed breakfast at morrison's by truman caput you know um arable farm by um george allwell a-l-l-w-e-l-l yeah. you know and it's just barley on the front um where's the drama george so th- these are <laughs> these are spoof book covers. And people say, um, so are Penguin okay with that? And I'm like, what? So it gets me. Are Instagram okay with that? I think no. it's, even that, is a, it's an interesting <laughs> reaction to notice. Yeah. If, they go straight to litigation yeah, and copyright. Yeah. It's just like, is what it, does oh, that tell behind? us about the... Yeah. I know. And, and if I may say, because a lot of the connection between this, this work is capitalism as a religion, which Yuval Harari who is one of my elders, and we might come on to. Um, So he kind of makes sense of things for me with his book, Sapiens, um, with his book, um, Homo Deus, etc. And he talks about capitalism as a religion. Mm He goes through, you know, history, um, because he's a historian, looks at communism, for example, as a religion, capitalism as a religion, Buddhism not as a religion, interestingly. Um, And so this capitalism soup um, when people have that reaction, I think it's partly it's protecting the uh, intellectual property of capitalism, mm. you know, and that they're reacting on other people's part. It might also be the litigation. In some cases, they might be worried that I'm going to get sued. You. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll give them that credit. But the other thing I just wanted to mention when we, we got this in front of us, um, this pyramid selling, is that I'm trying to find the natural home for these these items. And it's quite nice also to cross from 2D to 3D. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, we've got the Midas tears, the gold, um, coming down, binding together this pyramid selling, obviously like Amway, door-to-door selling kind of thing. Um, and I can just read some of the back. So yeah, capitalism guarantee, you can have any flavor as long as it's processed. Always read the label. Processed for a more synthetic flavor. Best before end of days. <laughs> It's just like capitalism will kill us and the planet. And this is about the, the impact and consequences of capitalism. So we've got scream of chicken, um, batteries included, uh, cream of carbon, skimmed and offset, um, Sainsbury's own brand, waste the difference about packaging. Now, this is where I get into trouble sometimes. This one's 
instead of hearty vegetable soup, we've got hearty vegicide made with roasted vegans. Now, I've got nothing against vegans. We're trying to eat vegetables as much as we can. Um, it was uh, Professor Pollen who wrote a book and had this seven-word mantra um, for how to eat. It's mm-hmm. self-improvement. Instead of, you know, having diet frenzies, that um, seven words, eat food, brackets, what's food, da-da-da, uh, mostly vegetables, not too much. Really simple. Yeah. You know, go back to basics. Um, but also, you can have any flavour as long as it's processed. What he describes is the the money is made, the margins are made, the profit is made through processed food. Mm. When was the last time you saw um, an advert for an apple? Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, you said apple-based snack. Oh, I'm doing okay. I'm giving my kids apple-based snack. Give them an effing apple. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, exactly. I agree so much. And yeah, it is that because it's, it's when you see the when, once the market opens up for mm. something that feels like I mean it's it's the way a lot of anti-capitalist stuff mm. works in itself as well. It's like when there's a there are markets that open up within capitalism for the anti-capitalist merchandise and and stuff. And maybe we'll talk about like mm. that that kind of antagonism and that conflict when you're creating stuff or like you're speaking into a situation that's like this is this needs questioning this mm. needs kind of pushing back against yeah, yeah and then it absorbs into it the you know where this is going <laughs> <laughs> the anti-marketing dollar yeah but, absolutely so yes. all paths lead back to bill hicks don't they so that was a big so when we because <laughs> we, we met we a little while ago we met up and had a had a chat for the first time and yeah Bill Hicks came up and we'll talk about sort of elders, cultural, creative, social elders that we kind of connect with. And Bill Hicks was one of those, for me, like huge, huge influence. The comedian's comedian. Yeah, absolutely. And just the way that he could just get to the point so like poignantly and intelligently intelligently and just, he just nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Took no prisoners. Exactly. But yes, this idea, the, uh, the anti-marketing, the anti-marketing dollar. dollar. So he's like, because um, I could do, do the stuff on religion he does, but if we're talking about marketing, talk about the anti-marketing dollar. And so he'll just say at some point, um, is there anyone here from marketing or advertising? And then it gets close to the mic and goes, kill yourselves. <laughs> no, no, there's no joke. There's no joke. You know, no, kill yourselves. And he's like, oh, he's smart. This is the marketing people. You're going for the anti-marketing dollar. That's a big dollar. Look at our research. We say that see a lot of people, and and, he's like, and then he goes on to just so oh, I'm like a spider caught in the web. You know, I feel trapped. Ah, you're trapped. <laughs> the trapped trap dollar. Oh, yes, <laughs> this is the trapped dollar. It's like you know, look at our research. We see that a lot of people feel trapped, and so there's a t-shirt in front, which I'm going to give you as a Christmas present, um, so Andy. Kind. Oh. And this one is 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 what we're talking about. So. I like the one brand I buy. I'm not promoting it. It's super dry. Um, and I do a super moist series. <laughs> Lovely. These are like self, self-lubricated, self <laughs> you know, uh, super moist swimwear, etc. Mm-hmm. And then this one's got similar kind of design, but it just says um, marketing. Um, the greatest story ever told. Manipulating the gullible since 1954, which I, I'm not... It kind of goes back to that period of post 
war, consumer frenzy, you know, uh, advertising for um, American housewives, that kind of period. Um, and then guaranteed to make you buy shit you don't need, um, which links us into Fight Club, which the Fight Club yeah. philosophy is a, is a good one. Um, but yeah, the anti-marketing dollar. And this also, forgive me, brings me to um, how really the obstacles, we were talking about that um, talk I did, and I was talking about the barriers. Part of the barrier is, A, when you spoof Instagram as Instagram on Instagram <laughs> or Netflix on Netflix. I'm not quite there with the um, TV series on Netflix. <laughs> do my special on Netflix. You'll get there eventually. I do Netflix. Um, but, but it's about... Um, uh, go, yeah, and also, you know, parodying phone obsession and then marketing. And then if you want to sell something, right? So Bill Hicks would do 220 dates a year and he had to make a living. So he had to sell some tickets, you know, but he was killing himself and he was getting over that by smoking a lot. And then he, he did die at 33, didn't he? Mm -hmm. um, pancreatic cancer. I mean, so sad. And he was shining so bright at that point. Um, but he would have a go at the celebrities that would hock products like Madonna selling Coke and George Michael selling Coke. And he'd say, you're off the artistic roll call once you do that. Um, and here I am, <laughs> hocking products on your podcast. And I've said, but it's just, it, it, what, what this is, these, these things, that it's art, but you're forced to turn them into products. Mm. You know, this commodification of art, which we can you know, talk about, and it links back to Alan at Listen Tree, you know, your last face-to-face um, -face podcast that he was trying to do sort of free heart and community art and bring people together. Um, and if we get on to Socrates talking, you know, talking about elders, he was happy just as Bill would have been in, in the Agora in Athens mm. and just sitting with people, asking questions and believing that knowledge was innate to those people and it would come out through the, the asking of questions. But we live in a time of commodification. It's really hard to just have art out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's talk about elders because that's come yeah. up a couple of times. And it's a really interesting thing that I'd not really thought about until we spoke before hmm. um, about being conscious and aware of, okay, who are those people who have been really important hmm. in, I guess, the, the formulation of my way of holding the world or seeing the world and hmm. uh, my creativity and all of that sort of stuff. Hmm. Um, Obviously, Bill Hicks has come up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Another one was Naomi Klein that we both um, kind of resonated with because she was a like seeing all of the, this stuff. Like one of the first books that I really engaged with on this um, on this topic really was No Logo. Yeah, of course. Um, kind of read that. Smash one. it. Yeah. And where was it? End of the nineties came out. Yeah. Early two thousand, I think I read yeah. it when yeah. I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, as far as sort of sending me down yeah. a rabbit hole of other elders goes. That was the book. It took me ages to read because yeah. there's so many references in it. I was like, oh, I need yeah. to go and read that book. Because it's semi-academic, you know, it's, it's different to stand-up comedy or it's different to, you know, Monty Python would be another one, mm. a key, key cultural kind of connection for me. And that feeds into my art. And as I've mentioned before, you know, stand-up comedians were my rock stars. You know, a lot of people connect on music because it's more um, sensorial. It's more kind of, it goes, it just goes into, yeah. doesn't it, music? And you're a music musician, you know all about that. Um, with with intellect and intellectual curiosity and ideas, it's it's different. And I would say, you know, just like the, 
the Penguin spoofs that I do, I came to the classics, as we say, later in life. Um, and it came through the lens of comedy. I wasn't forced to to read them earlier. So we think about formative influences, thinking of books, thinking of music, comedians. So when it comes to philosophy, and, and we mentioned Socrates, might as well start at the beginning. Because all, <laughs> right all things lead from Socrates. Yeah. Um, I mean, all past lead back to, to Bill Hicks. So that's a, <laughs> a nice circle. But um, yeah, so... Um, so we're talking about elders. The reason why I use the term elders, I think it's, it's a, synonymous with ancestors, you might say. And I'm interested in connecting with our history and ancestors. If you think of any ritual um, in indigenous communities, um, traditional communities, there would always be some kind of connection with ancestors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my wife is from a Jewish family, and so there's there's traditions that we share that connect us with you know ancestors going way way back, and that's something that Yuval Harari, who's one of my ancestors, does as a historian, um, and so he goes back to in Sapiens to the cognitive revolution in Sapiens evolution, and that's about stories. If you haven't read it, do read it. Mm. Um, uh, that. The cognitive revolution meant that we, instead of, you know, as apes, we might say, right, there's a river, we might say there's a tree. But at what point did it become the tree of knowledge or the family tree or, you know, the river of life? You know, these kind of things, an idea of it. You know, you can joke like the difference between apes and us in some ways is, and this feeds into capitalism. You think of bananas, right? If you say to an ape, right, you can have a banana now, just eat it, or you can have, I don't know, one banana, no, I mean, half a banana, describe, half a banana now, and like 10 in the afterlife, basically. Mm. So if you sacrifice now, you'll get more in the future. And obviously the, the ape would look at you, it's just been shown as a card trick, and be like, what? Um, so... Yeah, give me the bananas. <laughs> yeah, just give me all the bananas. <laughs> and now the link to capitalism is this kind of immediate gratification, and we need it now, and da-da-da. But that's, that's skipping forward. So um, we, we go from living in ape groups of maybe 80, 85, and those stories, so Yuval Harari tells us, um, enable us to connect with much larger groups of people, you know, peaceful groups of people. Anyway, so... So his book is brilliant. It gives me a sense of perspective, which goes millions of years. Mm. Um, bring it forward to lights of Socrates. And there he is. His mum's a, a midwife. He's practising meiotics, which is a, part, a Greek word for delivering, delivering babies, delivering knowledge. And so, as you know, I'm sure, um, you know, by asking questions, it brings out that, that knowledge. And Socrates started something when it links... And I've got some art here, which is um, the Great Philosopher's Drinking Society... And it starts with Socrates, and that links with the Monty Python drinking song. Socrates himself will be particularly missed. A lovely little beggar, but a bugger when he's pissed. Um, and then you've got Aristotle, a bugger for the bottle. Socrates was in dialogue with Plato. Let's get this in the right order. Plato at the symposium at Weatherspoons, if you know it. Um, <laughs> and then Aristotle um, was sort of pushing against Plato. But it kind of leads back to Socrates. And I would say that these guys are elders in the kind of more ancestral sense. But then in in Yuval Harari, in Naomi Klein, No Logo and Shock Doctrine and her latest book, which we both read, um, Doppelganger. um, She just, basically what it comes down to, what she's trying to do and what I'm trying to do is something a little bit similar in the sense that um, it's a complicated, confused, fractured world. 
And it doesn't make a lot of sense in many ways. Um, and she, for me, and Yuval Harari, and that long trajectory going way back, just give me a sense of perspective, but some sense of clarity. But then the, the idea that um, if, if you don't know how it's all worked out, you know, how it's all supposed to be, then that's, that's okay, mm. you know? And go back to Socrates, the only man that knows is the man that knows he does not know. Yeah. yeah, and there's a Shakespeare quote somewhat similar as well with the fool. So I think that's an important thing that I take from from elders. Um, and, and Bill Hicks just helps with, you know, laughter is the medicine. A spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Um, not always a huge amount of sweetener with, uh, with Bill Hicks, as we know, sometimes quite a blunt truth. <laughs> but he's still in search of truth. And I think yeah. that's what I'm trying to do. This combination of beauty is truth, truth is beauty. They're two sides of the same mm. coin, if you like. I really like that, yeah. And the, it's the... Because the, the thread that goes through all of those, and even when you sort of look at Naomi Klein's evolution of thought in her own kind of journey through the books, and she talks about it in, in Doppelganger, of um, like reflecting back to her approach to no logo and some of the antagonisms that mm, she right. she had herself uh, or things that she didn't realize, oh, I wouldn't do that again in the same way if I was to go back mm. and, and relive that that time. And it's like yeah. actually truth is this, this evolving thing that you're st- – or the quest for truth, the relationship that we have with those sorts of truths – uh, it's like this ongoing circling around this questioning and that, you know, the Socratic method itself is like, yeah. that's the whole, the whole point is it's questions. Yeah. It, you're sort of rubbing up against things. Then you see Plato mm. and Aristotle sort of takes Plato, builds on it, sort of subverts bits of it that, mm-hmm. in ways that maybe leaves that relationship a little bit fractured, but it evolves the thinking yeah. and then paves the way for the next things. And, and that's, um, that kind of goes against, I suppose when you talk about art that makes you think, like mm. that's the thought, that's what's mm. going on. It's not, again, art telling you what to think, because I know the yeah. truth and this is, and you have to, yeah. I suppose it's like the thought for the day yeah. thing. It's like, oh, we're, we're kind of circling in. The this. answer is Jesus. Yeah, but you know, suddenly the you, is, yeah. You, you propose this yeah. and this is the answer. Yeah. As opposed to, no, just stop there and people are going to be thinking and people are going to be able to reflect yeah. on that and ask the questions themselves. Yeah, and it feeds into the, um, the counselling technique of active listening. So talk about Socrates' approach and open questions. There's an element of funnelling in it. So the mm. idea you have an open question and then you, you get to where you kind of both need to get to. Yeah. So there is a role for the questioner in the sense of shaping somehow, you know, in a positive way. Um, but, so, but, but opening up, not closing down, and mm. certainly starting from a very open point of view and then there's the logos so the joke i thought about this morning for no logo if i was parodying the ones i really love then it would be no logos um the the old greek word for for logic and and sort of going through a process of of questioning that gets to the logical truth in in some way and i think no logos might be you know this kind of distraction we we distract ourselves with netflix um we distract ourselves with some of these ways of spending our time um, so that we don't consider the, the big questions, the questions yeah. that Socrates was most interested in. And interestingly, never wrote things down, you know, as they say at that, that time. And, you know, 
we we have our thoughts. Is it enough just to have thoughts? Is it enough just to have a conversation in the agora? Or do we need to get things down? I feel I need to... The reason I kind of came out as an artist, you know, which was at a comedy gig, and um, after hearing about how exotic and interesting my wife is, turned to me and said, um, so what's your story? And he says, well, I used to be, you know, humanitarian worker around the world, places you can't go on holiday, but now um, I identify as an artist. (laughs) It's like, well, there's so much in that, Ben, you know, kind of thing. But when you identify as an artist, the idea that you almost have to sort of just kind of vomit up your your thoughts and ideas and express yourself, um, whether or not anyone's going to read them or buy them or look at them, um, and I think there is something to that kind of artist process. Art is not a commodity, but of course it is. Um, but then art as a as a as a process. This was an interesting thing that came up with Alan, and we were talking about, you know, because he has volunteers who come and help out at the at the LTB yeah. at the Litton Tree, and. Um, and he says it's the it's the passion that drives it. So people turning up, you know, they're not getting paid, but they, there's a passion for that. They're and then part of something. Exactly. Mm. And it's the same with, um, so like when I wrote this song as part of this rapid response mm. exhibition and the question that people were responding to was, if tomorrow was your last day on earth, what would you choose to do or choose mm. not to do? Um, and people talked about creating stuff and you know playing music together and and Mm. like you know drawing and that sort of thing and it's like okay that wouldn't be the case if art was only a commodity if Mm. creativity was only the point of creativity was only to produce products yeah um and nobody interestingly said i'd go to work and you know sort of do whatever my job is um but there's something intrinsically important about creativity like there's and as you identify as an artist, mm. it's like there's a part of you, I'm sure, that would create art regardless of any guarantee of getting paid for it because it's like yeah. I have to yeah. – it's my way of processing the world. It's my way of making sense of That's right. yeah. the kind of shit around me and all of that sort of stuff. But, yeah, yeah, and there's an example of this in well, – I was in Birmingham yesterday and the Christmas markets and, you know, there's – Buskers, there's musicians, really good musicians, you know, in the centre of town as there are all over the world. And, you know, long after CDs became an anathema, anachronistic, um, they would connect with people in the street, they'd play the music, people stop for a moment. If they had coins, they had money, um, they might give some. But ultimately they want to sell more, they want to sell their CDs, sell their albums. So you have this sort of like filling the world with beauty, you know, musical beauty, you know, adding to people's, you know, daily shop or whatever it might be. Um, and at some point, you know, the artist is forced to kind of grab at the air and and grab those people passing by and, yeah. and, and sell something to them. And people through often guilt, I'd like it to be more about love, but they put some money in the hat or something. Now we don't have any money. So now yesterday there was a guy, you know, doing some, some nice music and he had his sort of self-service card reader. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but it's just, it's this, this thing about commodifying, you know, beautiful experiences that are creative experiences that we call art um, and how you do that, mm. um, how you make a living um, before we get on to free art in the online world and the evolution of AI, which, mm. um, you know, probably is another podcast. <laughs> I think there's a lot of podcasts in the, all of these yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because I suppose there's, it's that difference 
you know, if somebody is walking past like a busker or like even, you know, me seeing your work mm. at the spa center, mm. um, it wasn't because you were trying to sell it mm. that made me think, Oh, I want to engage with that. It was actually, no, there's something's grabbed me there. Mm. And like when you're walking past a busker or oh, something's grabbed me, um, and then how as artists or how as musicians you sort of hold lightly to that next part of the process, which yeah. is, oh, this person potentially wants to say thank you or show their gratitude with financial yeah. means or whatever. Like that might be the way yeah. that they do that. And making that possible without turning it into a, an icky transaction. That's <laughs> always been my... Like, but it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and I think back to that, that moment. I had a little stall where I was giving that talk. And, you know, I don't think I sell very much at all there. Um, but, you know, very similar to a busker in the sense that yeah. um, you're looking to connect with people. Ultimately, it comes down to human being to human being, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Um, whether it's a, a movie you watch, like I watched Napoleon the other day, and it just felt a bit flat, like it hadn't engaged me. Right. There was so much going on in it, like so many other action movies just didn't really engage me. And you felt connection, Bill Hicks and otherwise, you know, and so you come and see me because I'm there behind the stall. My stuff's around as it is today, but it's as much just that connection between two people or more people, isn't it? Um, and that when you then think, as I have created these online shops, you know, to parody um, uh, Field of Dreams, um, which is a Kevin Costner baseball movie, you know, building a baseball park in, in the, uh, the cornfield, as and your American listeners will know very well. And you, know, you build a website, build it, and they will not come. They will most definitely <laughs> not come. They will not come. Um, they will not stride through, like ghosts through the corn. Um, they will um, go on to Amazon. They'll go on to maybe Etsy and these sort of places, Redbubble, where I sell t- T-shirts and, and the mugs and things like that. These are flooded marketplaces where, you know, you build your shop on there mm. and you how, how are you going to get people to it? How are you going to walk people to it? So, But I was just thinking when you're saying about that, that connection that we had, if all you have is an online shop with a bunch of thumbnail pictures of my art, all you're seeing is product. Yeah. Um, a, I need to be more in that. It's the same as the Instagram feeds and stuff. When I put my ugly face on it, then you get more, you know, interaction because people want to connect with yeah. a person, so, not just a human, the product. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's the the power of things like podcasts as well. Is yeah. like actually hearing hearing the voice behind things mm. and hearing the, you know, the thinking and the context that's that's from which someone mm. from, or from where someone is coming, mm. um, and that might be a great place to transition into AI because okay, like you know. The, I suppose thinking about that difference, AI can churn out art. That, mm. So I understand whether you can tell the difference or not. I'm not sure. I mean, there was that. There was was there one that won a photo competition. That was no a, doubt. No yes, doubt. and so there's there are people who are who will tell you I can tell the difference always between AI and mm. you know man made human made art. Um. But I'm not sure how true that is. Uh, well, it's very nicely uh, discussed and described in uh, Yuval Harari's second book, uh, Homo Deus. So this is like humans becoming gods, basically, through biotech and infotech. And I think it's in that book where he's talking about music in this case. So um, hmm. one of the composers, let's say Beethoven, 
Um, so there's a Beethoven piece, there's an AI piece, there's another composer, a contemporary um, composer. So there are three pieces and there's an audience and they basically press the buzzers, which one's which, and they get it completely wrong. And this is, you know, a really difficult, my brother only got, I don't know, two thirds of the way through that book because it looks into the future and it's a bit of a dark place and AI is definitely part of that because it's a dehumanizing experience, you know. What is it to be human? We talk about you know living the good life, and what is it to be human is absolutely key question mark. And um, you know, okay, so in terms of my kids, the four C's. Apparently, and this is Yuval Harari saying, um, he says first of all, Socrates, know thyself. Okay, this is make sure you know yourself better than the algorithms do. That's how you survive. And that's quite a simple kind of notion, which is great. <laughs> But there's lots of things about sharing data that are part of that as a problem. The other thing is, um, you know, in terms of career and jobs, and he says, this is when, I, when he's talking esoterically, intellectually about lots of things. When I mention jobs, this is Yuval Harari at an event, then suddenly people pay attention. Because um, this is in the context of AI taking over a whole bunch of right. jobs. And he says, you know, in terms of education, <clears throat> think of the four C's. Think of collaboration, communication, critical thinking, and creativity. And so in lockdown, my kids and beyond, I'm trying to teach them these four C's. But then, which is why it becomes a difficult book to read, he's then going, because he's already killed the soul. He yeah. said, there's no such thing as a soul. Yeah. You know, we're not an individual, we're a divided self, da-da-da. You're like, oh, so I haven't got a soul, right? Okay, I'll try and get, get through that. One of the only things that makes you human is creativity. And then you're like, and then he tells you that Beethoven composer story and you're like, right, so what have we got left? So if the computers, you know, if the AI can produce creativity, yes, on the shoulders of giants, on the shoulders of what we've produced as human beings, that's di difficult to recognise mm. um, that it's not human, then where are we? It's a, it's we, we, a, need, we need an uplift, uh, Andy, after no, this. A, it's a really interesting question because I, I think it... To me, it's sort of like, oh, I, I like that question because it gives you something to, mm. to get your teeth into. Um, and so if creativity is not mm. the, the product or the thing, because, you, you know, you can't tell the difference between mm. Beethoven, AI and whoever, um, what is creativity as defined through the human mm. lens? Um, and I think we've, we've already talked about sort mm. of the importance of connection um, and the power of connection. I think there's something, to me, there's something really important about, uh, or something uniquely human about the way that we connect with one another. Mm. And there's a creativity that, or a creative spirit that emerges when people come together and mm. actually explore ideas and, yeah. you know, do like do the Socratic um, yeah. method or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, cannot be because i mean there's there's ai therapists kind of emerging ai you know, this oh, whole idea of like based on therapists throughout time and how they've um, yeah, solved the problems and kind of like reflecting and again it's the mirror world stuff i right. suppose because it's yeah. it's reflecting back to you what you've plugged into the algorithm or yeah. like yeah, what, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, how you're perceived by technology to be and it's kind of, yeah, and like it might ask open questions that like with coach, I think you could legitimately find ways to create AI coaches that do a job. 
but they don't know the person in yeah, the, or they yeah, yeah. You, they can't you can't have that sort of back and forth really getting into it together yeah that is going to lead to change ultimately and, and you know and, and communication is not just language so if you think about an evolved chatbot being a, yeah. a an ai coach or, or whatever you want to call it ther- therapist <laughs> oh, yeah yeah you need a therapist usually after calling uh you know virgin hotline so you know sort out your broadband or something but um now there's a place for ai in terms of like the the decision tree algorithm of you know uh, sort out your your broadband connection, but they also use decision trees in ambulance. Um, you know, so if you call the ambulance or nine 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 or nine one one, and um, you know they'll they'll follow a decision tree essentially, mm-hmm. and it's very easy then to turn that into an AI. I mean, would you want AI though answering the nine one one in terms of you know someone who's slightly disturbed because they're in trauma? Um, and maybe it's a child, um, maybe the, the parent's fallen or something has happened at home. Do you want an AI responding to that, if you like, at face value, um, without that kind of intuition? So communication, not just language, you know, body language, tone, you know, facial expressions, all these sorts of things. They're all our... But we're a little bit grasping for straws, saying we are still human. But I wanted to just say, you know, because I'm, I'm keen on this, beauty is truth, truth is beauty. Um, connection is humanity. Humanity is connection. I think in what you were saying, that kind of just sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. That it's definitive. That connection, an art is a way and a means of doing so between individuals, one-to-one, and also groups. So Plato and Aristotle would have been, you know, in some kind of forum, in like a theatrical stage, and it was all about rhetoric, it was all about public speaking. Um, and that connected because it was face-to-face. Socrates yeah. sat down with people physically. He wasn't tweeting, <laughs> as far as I know. He wasn't tweeting about stuff he saw. Um, he was talking to people directly, yeah. you know. And I find this myself on my own social media. You know, they say <laughs> social, it's social stupid that you, you're at a party or something. You don't just start talking about yourself, you know. Mm. You get eye contact, you, you ask someone questions, you say, how was your weekend? You know, you let them talk about themselves first. And it's just so easy because I don't want to go on social media. I don't like social media. I don't want to be, the, you know, doing that instead of being present with my kids or anyone else. Mm. You know, um, see people walking around on their phones on social media. Um, but that means that I would sit down and make a post. I will, you know, comment on other people's stuff, you know, because I want to sometimes and also because you need to. Um but you're just going up to someone and saying, like I have been in this discussion, I've got a piece of art about that, um, you know, and I just hope it will somehow enhance their lives. Like they'll put that Brexit thing up on the kitchen wall and they'll go, yeah, that's great. That makes me laugh every time I make my Marmite toast. Yeah. And that's all I really want, you know, for people to, you know, laughter is the medicine. And with some of the topics that I covered, like COVID, I did with Penguin Books, and I do these bookcase compositions, and Yuval Harari is one of those. So it's um, Home Sapiens instead of Homo Sapiens, uh, the brief self-isolation of humankind. Um, and then there's a zoom of the view, and there's the hand-washing tale, um, and all these. And so these are, are bookcases, and um, you know, and the conversations I had face to face with people who came and saw that, and I sold out on my limited edition of sixty, and it's like this never happens. Because it created, there was a time when it was too raw, mm-hmm. um, and and I came out with it during lockdown, and then I went to the first exhibitions. I went, there you go, this is what's going on, 
And it was this kind of like, you either laugh or you cry. But this became a like a positive capsule review of a period of time that people could put behind them. Mm. And the idea is you stick it in chocolate corner in your house or you give it to someone. When you're fixing drinks, then people come to that space and laugh. And then they go, you know, so, yeah, anyway, there's, there's 40 or 50 titles in there. Um, the Tale of Two Coughs, for example, instead of The Tale of Two Cities. Um, and someone might then think about, oh, yeah, I remember when I went to that super spreader bingo night and then I got COVID yeah. and everyone got it. You know, Man and Superman, Man and Super Spreader is one of the other ones. <laughs> so, so you have all these, and it's, you can laugh at that yeah. point. But at yeah. the time, it was scary, you know, yeah, and it was yeah. horrible. So, so it's about just trying to sometimes address some of these tough, um, tough issues with a bit of a, a smile and a, and a laugh. Yeah. And that provides, it's almost like prompt, talking prompts yeah. that people then... Hmm. then do connect through and tell stories and you know the importance of of story in connection yes yeah and i and it's really interesting that idea of the divided self Hmm. actually being something really key Hmm. to what makes us different because there's almost the undivided aspect of ai Hmm. or the oh sorry back to ai yes yeah i mean just to just think about that, what that idea of connection and creativity yeah, yeah, yeah. is and, yeah, yeah. and coming together as, as divided subjects. So like there's, we don't have this sense of like exactly who we are. Like we're always thinking like, what does it mean to be mm, me? Who mm. am I? And, and that's again, the point it's that transitional space, similar mm. to the transitional space of like, that's where the meaning is made. It's, mm. it's how we explore what it means to, to be us mm. that then creates or create space for interesting things to to come out of that and where we meet together as humans Mm. in those areas of murky ambiguity of like what like politics itself democracy is Mm. is sort of working out that space of like Mm. these things that we don't we can't quite grasp together Mm. there's no perfect solution Mm. to it so therefore we've got mm. to find a way to, to make it work. And I think some of these things are positive, some of them are negative in terms of we're connecting on emotions quite often. And as we know, some of the most powerful emotions, well, fear is one which politics exploits. Yeah. But then there's also kind of loss and, you know, the poignancy of, of difficult circumstances. And I don't know, you can tell me, but in my talk, I did say something about, you know, my, during lockdown at some point, you know, my mum was driving me and my, my dad to radiotherapy, both going through, you know, cancer treatment. And I remember kind of, you know, voice was faltering and I was a little bit, you know, upset up there in front of 300 people. And I didn't do it on, on purpose in the sense, you know, like Hillary Clinton, um, you know, when she had some tears on the, on the campaign trail, suddenly it was like poll ratings went up. And it's got to be authentic. And this is the, the challenging thing, isn't it? You know, but at least it was for me at the time. And, and maybe that then is a connection, just like the... The bookshelf's about um, COVID, which is called My Self-Isolation Miseducation, that that was tough times that were connecting people. So it was a big seller. It was just like because people were like, yeah, we went through that and that was really hard. And they felt that they connected with someone, because I would also tell them what was going on in my life, who'd been through something like similar or something difficult. Mm. And I think it's that through good times, through joy, you know, we go to a music festival together, we have a good time, brilliant, lose ourselves in, in the crowd. But then also, when things are really tough, melancholy is actually really powerful mm. um, to connect people. Absolutely. And, and I find with a lot of my stuff is 
I don't want to say it's mean spirited, and this is why I flip like Instagram self improvement to I love you because your life is not highlights real or you're beautiful just the way you are. It's turning on its head and saying, I don't want to be pointing at the world saying, this is effed up. You know, what are you doing? What are people doing? It's more kind of like, there are potentially two paths. There's a kind of online, offline, off grid. People could live differently. They could choose, they have to, only they can choose to live differently. But they stop and think about it. They might want to think about storing up all kinds of problems for their, their next generation and doing something different. Um, yeah. which is something that um, when you talk about the mirror world this is yeah. um, you know, doppelganger yeah. this is what she's when we talk about what it means to be human and this so when some things are just too hard to kind of either comprehend or to live with we create a mirror self mm. we create someone else often with a you know the story is not wholly true you know curated self online yeah uh, yeah yeah, what were, you, what were your sort of big takeaways from that book? Because mm. people should go out and, and, and check it out. My daughter's named after Naomi. Um, that was probably after No Logo. We both yeah. you know, started on that journey. But so many great books. And um, Doppelganger, big take. Well, because it, it's essentially about the fact that Naomi Wolf, who was a, um, a liberal um, feminist Jewish woman, and so was Naomi Klein, liberal in different ways, you might say. But they were kind of similar looking so they kind of got mistaken for each other and during covid naomi wolf went batshit crazy <laughs> so like many people went down the rabbit hole and she um bought into all the conspiracy theories she went on steve bannon's kind of war room and these podcasts that are on the right the shock jocks kind of podcasts and anyway um naomi kind of started getting um confused with her and it started to become really quite offensive and there were certain elements that were a little bit um well that could be naomi klein because um and it was about the shock doctrine i think so disaster capitalism it, yeah. Yeah. and that there were some elements that you could say they were of on the same page and this just became really challenging for us so anyway she wrote a book about it but then it becomes all lots of different forms of doppelganger um so the online curated self you know the friend i said in new york that kind of example where you're not sure if you're seeing the whole truth here as someone said about facebook photographs or facebook profiles in particular it's like personalized propaganda mm. it's like why are they always smiling you know often you remember from that experience something quite different from that holiday or something yeah and we all do it it's and it's and it's how the the doppelganger almost you start to lose yourself in that in that it's not it's not even that you're deliberately contriving a, a separate self whether it's online or whatever it's like the so you've got the oh, sorry. image behind you that We've I think is quite, about that. quite relevant there um, where it's the it's the boy the fox the mole the what, yeah, all of those things. The, the Boy and the Mole, The Fox and the, the Horse uh, by Charles Maxey. Beautiful series. Um, my dad, who died during COVID, um, he bought it for my, my son, so his grandson, you know, annotated it beautifully. And it was about Charles Maxey suffered loss and it was a way of him coping with the grief. During that time, people atomized on their screens and he was posting this on Instagram you know, became a sensation. Someone from Penguin came and, and said, we should do a book about this. 
And so they did. And it, so it's beautiful, but it's about go back to nature, go back to love. But from where I stand, especially as you said earlier off, offline, that um, when it came to the, the film, which came out at Christmas, it was a bit glossy, a bit saccharine, lots and lots of memes sort of strung together. And I think that sort of did injustice to uh, Charles Maxey's beautiful notebook sketches, which were kind of stills, and you could just stay with one and not go through the whole 15-minute a- animation. Um, and so I'm always looking to kind of subvert something that became iconic because it was at the top of the charts for yeah. two, three years. And I just felt that people were not changing their life on the basis of this. Why should they after a piece of art, a book? But it did connect with a lot of people. But then they then continued to sort of, their interactions with nature were sort of mediated through technologies. Mm. So here you've got a boy sat on um, a a tree uh, branch, looking out into the distance, in theory. Um, But in my example, he's on his phone. And it says, Alexa, what do I want to be when I grow up? Asked the boy. Now, this could be for Christmas, um, which it is now. Um, Alexa, what do I want for Christmas? Or what do I want for my birthday? Mm. The idea that, um, go back to know thyself to beat the algorithms, that Alexa knows him better than he knows himself. What's worse is that the three friends that he spent this whole story with are all kind of bored and he's just on his phone. Mm. So this seems really sad again. And this is why I try and turn it into something more positive. But people who buy this series as a spoof they, they put it up in their kids' rooms, they put it up around the house, but it's, um, it's because they, they want it to be a cautionary tale. They've got kids and they want them to say, be present, mm-hmm. be present with your friends, put your phone down. When you're having these moments, enjoy them. Yeah. Yeah, and the reason I think it's, it's relevant and yeah, the sort of know thyself, um, you know, kind of beat the algorithm, like that's a, Difficult task, yeah, but yeah. Um, just it, it kind of speaks to that idea with the doppelganger of like, you input, what do I want to be when I grow up? You might ask all sorts. I, I remember searching, I'd watched Breaking, was it Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul? Um, and I was kind of looking at some of the reviews of it and like kind of people, the questions people were asking. And what I was really struck by was people asking is such and such, like Howard, I think was one of the characters, um, is Howard a goodie or a baddie? Um, and I was like, that's a really mm. in, interesting insight into the way that we are mm. trying to form our opinions. And like, I guess it's a complete lack of critical thinking because what you're doing is outsourcing your opinion to someone else. Like, mm. what am I supposed to think? Like, mm. And not to mention the fact that it's a, completely dualistic way of looking at the world. It's like this person, this ambiguous character who actually is, is quite a good representation of humans in that there's all sorts of gray and nuance Mm. in this character. That means there are some, some good things that they've done. There's some really terrible things that they've done. And a lot of it is kind of driven by weird desire and all sorts of, yeah, kind of underlying Mm. motivations that aren't conscious Maybe for them, they're not deciding deliberately, I'm going to do this because I'm good or bad. But yeah, just the fact that we are, we're searching for those kinds of answers um, and then you become, you become the doppelganger mm. because it's like, 
now I'm regurgitating what I've been told to think based on the yeah. maybe that question. What do I want to be when I grow up? Like, yeah. I need somebody to tell me that. And yeah. then that becomes the truth or yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah. And if everyone's feeding the beast, everyone's feeding the algorithm um, and they're becoming more and more similar to each other. We all other. sort of homogenize yeah. in that sense of, and, yeah. And then you, you become like um, you know, Keanu Reeves' um, Neo in The Matrix. You become, I know we're all past sleep back there and some use that analogy in a, in, a, in a bad way, but it is, the philosophy is actually quite robust, I think, in the, in the story. And he ends up in this kind of pod, right? And everyone does and they have, they're plugged in, they're in that mm. serum. And they're just sort of being mined or they're being exploited uh, and farmed for, um, well, whatever it is they want to get out of it. And then a lot of these dystopian sci-fi type things, you know, you can put a name on what it is that someone's taking from you. But you only have to understand. And another name check would be Shushana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism mm-hmm. um, as, a, as a book which coined the term. And it's about, you know, our use of technology, our use of social media um, and this sort of shadow text. So there's the text online that you see, um, you know, the website text and stuff. And then there's all the SEO tagging and all sorts of other things which are behind that Google will then crawl all over. And um, every time we post, you know, it's what they're, they're really agnostic or what's the other word. Um, they don't really care, the surveillance capitalists, the meta, the alphabet, um, et cetera. Um, Microsoft, what you're posting, they just want you to feed it. They want you yeah. to feed that that beast, and um, you know they want. It's a it's a, an addictive thing. It's like those chairs in uh, Las Vegas in a in a slot machine, fruit machine. You're, it's like hand in glove. You're kind of just there with the lights and the and the sounds and all that. Um, and there's so many. Yeah, there's whole departments in Facebook which are about essentially addiction and ensuring you get the dopamine hit. So. Yeah. All they're interested in is just more and more data. So <laughs> I'm looking to rejoin the Lanyard community. I'm looking to rejoin, um, you know, uh, work, the world of work from you know, gig economy and artwork. And I work at farm and uh, I organize festivals. Anyway, lots of different things. But I feel like I need to get, you know, a, a job, the world of work. So how do you do that? You go on LinkedIn. Now, the Instagram um the Netflix is part of a series called California Dreaming. There's another one on there, which is around LinkedIn, which is Inkedin, Indelibly Ours. And this is the story of um, LinkedIn sold to Microsoft. Microsoft buy it because they're behind the curve of Alphabet. They're behind the curve of Meta. Um, they're an old world company, you know, that did the PCs and the hard drives and stuff. And they need to get some of this data. They need to, you know, because they... They harvest it, they code it, they sell it. They sell it to all the marketeers and et cetera. But they also store up this amazing power base. Um, no conspiracy here, California. Um, the, the data that will be, well, every time you get a loan, uh, every time you apply for a job um, or for a university degree or whatever it might be, you know, it's that little Britain computer says no mm. or the computer says yes. And it's all on the mm. algorithm. It's a black box. It's like... You know, we don't know what goes on in there. It's gotten too complicated. But feed that beast and then the intellectual property, so our very imagination becomes the intellectual property. So in the case of LinkedIn, and I had a, <laughs> I had a conversation with my um, sister-in-law. She came around to tell me about LinkedIn. And I, I, kept, I kept on having to say, look, you can see what I'm like. I'm going to just start having a conversation about surveillance capitalism. <laughs> can you just tell me how LinkedIn works and how it can somehow 
benefit me. I try not to think about the data harvesting that's put Microsoft back up the charts and fighting for the, the top um, revenue company in the world. Um, and I'm like, she, she says, well, you have to just be posting all the time. You have to tickle each other. You have to, you know, like and share and you have to constantly be putting posts on. Um, they don't care really what you put on, but, you know, if you use exclamation marks an awful lot, then they'll know that you're, um, what's the word, um, you're in... If you if you buy you're, you're going to buy something like that, um, in, not in, impulsive, impulsive yeah. buy it. Thank you, uh, Andy. Yeah, and 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 they'll get from that what they can sell to you, but they'll also you know change the course of an election and, and many other things, mm. you know, and that's a real worry. So this is another way in which I trip myself up because I I parody all of the devices and and apps that I'm supposed to use to get a job as well as. Yeah. <laughs> try and sell things so if I can't sell art I need to go and get a job but then when you make an application for the job then they're going to look on your LinkedIn indelibly ours saying are you taking the piece out of us <laughs> yeah, that's true yeah <laughs> so. yeah no this we talked before about the <clears throat> the the issue around those kinds of elders that we've been discussing yeah. and how they I've, like there are many times in my life I've been like I wish I'd never come across no logo. Yeah. I wish I yeah, could yeah. just see the world in the way that I see other people seeing the world yes. and engage with it in that way. Cause exactly. it's like, I, it's really frustrating when you like see the issues yeah. in things. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. like, Oh, you know, why can you not just believe the greatest story ever told is yeah. marketing yeah. and just live with it. Yeah. It's hard. It's like, you can't unsee some things it's like trauma and, and accidents. And I've worked in refugee camps and places. You can't unsee that no, stuff. No. Um, it's hard, isn't it? It is. It's really and where does it lead really us? Because you talked about rabbit holes. It kind of, how can it open up again? Yeah. And I think that's a really, you know, for your future episodes, when you think about the good life, how can we embrace the world around us? Yeah. Some things aren't going to change, are they? Yeah. Um, it's not always turning it to our advantage. No, exactly. And it's because it's easy. Again, it's one of the things that I've been grappling with around like the the whole s slow coach aspect yeah. and slowing down and, and all of that and you end up very easily moving into just a again the anti-marketing dollar mm. like commodifying slowness and it's like no it's it's something <laughs> that there's it's, a mindfulness app for your phone exactly, to get you off it's, your it's phone. all of that stuff where it's and you know with all the, the mindfulness apps that have been integrated into workplaces to yeah. basically make their workers more effective more effective yeah, yeah. and it's like yeah. i again this i'm the trap dollar you yeah. can't get it's out bill. Oh, pass it to <laughs> bill hicks again yeah absolutely it's, uh, it's strange um yeah i mean we will uh, draw this to a close i think because we could go on we could go on it's been great and i just want to maybe finish with happy happyopoly yeah, absolutely. A, Please, um, especially for local Leamington listeners, um, uh, some of you may be a long way away from Leamington. But um, if I'm like a positive thing to, yeah, it is. So if I just slightly connect this to our Socratic philosophers again, um, that Aristotelian uh, ethics was about virtues and following virtues, and instead of kind of like the afterlife will deliver, it's kind of be the best you can be throughout your life. Um, and you know, we can talk about. You know, the way we live and how important community is. So my community is Leamington Spa, um, where I was born, spent 20 years away and then came back. 
um, and I'm looking at now, and you could be able to see it um, at some point. Um, I've got a board, uh, the Monopoly board. Now, I understand the Monopoly board was actually created um, as a parody of capitalism. This is just genius when I found this out. And it was after I produced this that someone looked at it and they said, you know, it was a parody to start with. Um, it was someone, an artist, saying, look at this. And then, as it was, Waddington's <laughs> took, took it yeah. and ran with it. Now, they then created just two different editions. So there's kind of the standard and the luxury edition, <laughs> which has probably got some gold on it somewhere. Um, but basically, it was, it was a green board that you know and love. That Again, art that makes you think. So iconic stuff that you subvert. So when I look at this Monopoly board, which now says Happyopoly instead of Monopoly, and it's sort of an alternative to the um, Fast Learning Capitalism Starter Pack. So instead of screwing over your family members often at Christmas and that end of the game kind of throw the board up and all the pieces fall <laughs> and your kids can run off screaming. Um, it's create happiness as you pass. So there's no money involved in this. There's happiness points. Um, and so as you play the, the game, there are change. So think be the change you want to see in the world. Gandhi, always a good place to go. Or yes, we can, kind of Obama vibe. Um, so you've got change instead of chance. Instead of that kind of fatalist kind of stuff's just going to happen. There's nothing I can do about it. If I don't do it, someone else will kind of attitude. And then you've got, instead of community chest, which again is just a chest full of money, isn't it? I don't know, like a pirate's mm, treasure. Yeah. <laughs> you've got community service and it's what can you do for other people to, to make things right? So yeah, train stations replaced by Leamington parks. Um, the utilities are, are like music and, and festivals, like one we lost around here called the Peace Festival, um, and other kind of jokes. But it's um, with the case of Monopoly, I felt as if that red and white box. It was almost like for American listeners, you'll you'll have in mind the Gideons who would put Bibles in hotel rooms. <laughs> Something that Bill Hicks talks about. He says, "I saw the." Um, the mini bar guy come and go. I saw the um, the cleaner come and go. I didn't set eyes on a Gideon. What these like ninjas? <laughs> but in all of those hotels, they had Bibles, right? And I feel as if um, Warringtons or Hasbro later who bought it, then just put them in in people's like living rooms, and then you never remember buying it. But the kids would get them mm. out, and it just starts them on capitalism. It's just like. Property, money. Like normalises that language. In, yeah. and, and then you create essentially this religion of, of capitalism. So this is, um, is, is different. This mm. is like um, you play the game, you do something for yourself, you get a certain number of happiness points, you, you're happy, that's a good thing. But if you do something for other people, you get more, you get double, you get triple. And when the people playing, so four people playing, you have a threshold of happiness points. And once you reach that threshold, everyone's happy. The game's over. Mm. No one kicks over the board. Everyone just, you know, probably goes on their phones. No, goes and have dinner or has something nice. Um, and you've had a positive family experience yeah. or with, with friends. So I can't sell the game because then I get into trouble and the people will ask that question. But it's a, it's a print. And, um, yeah. It's, you can sell the print and people can... Well, it'd bring a little bit of happiness, yeah, maybe. But absolutely. again, it's a conversational piece. It's got no idea behind it. Yeah, and I think it, like you know, as as I hear you describe it, I'm like, there's so many things, little mm. sparks that light up in me, and you know, it's like it's like polypoly rather than monopoly. Monopoly, like it's yeah. you know, it's together. We 
And yeah. it's beyond, because some people might hear that and think, like, oh, you just, everyone wins. You make everyone, like, yeah, kind yeah, of live in this. Yeah, everyone wins, yeah. But, like, this, this snowflake world that we live in where everyone gets a medal for participation. It's like, <laughs> it's, a di- it's not that, because no, we win together. We because win it's together, like, yeah. I mean, through connection is strength, which is a Bear Grylls um, quote, always good go-to. Um, but it's where, um, come back to Naomi Klein, um, yeah. doppelgangers, basically where she ends up. Yeah. You know, that it's, um, it's about collaboration and it's about community. I it's mean, changes it's a the, simple answer, really. Because it, I don't know if you've read um, The Courage to Be Disliked, which is about sort of Ad- Alfred Adler. No, I haven't. No. So his, um, his individual psychology, which... And, in that, he talks about the difference between horizontal, horizontal and vertical mm-hmm. relationships, mm-hmm. and our kind of basically our structure, social structuring that we have of the world, the way that we conceptualize things, um, and it's that difference between the vertical, which is I place myself in the hierarchy. Every every interaction I have with another person, I'm kind of mm. ranking myself in yeah. accordance. So it's like yeah. either I'll be think of myself as better or worse yeah. than them, and so then everything that ensues from that it is like the the whole interaction is defined through that filter yeah whereas the horizontal is we are even if we even if we see the world differently we're potential comrades mm. and like everything is yeah connected and even if you are in a position within an organization like you might be the ceo and i'm who like whatever down down here we are equals at the level mm. of being mm. um and then that completely changes the way that you start to to think about even definitions of success yeah, and yeah. you know absolutely that, that sort of connection and yeah. togetherness and and that's exemplified by you know the game of monopoly and you know m- money competitiveness survival of the yeah. fittest and all of that and it seems a very male thing i worry about my son really loving monopoly um and you know my feeling is that women should be running the world women should be um running uh as CEOs, as prime ministers, as presidents, because they're just not competitive in quite the same way and they're more community-focused. And I think in letting men loose on being as competitive as they can be and that sense of um, vertical or hierarchical, you know, it doesn't matter who you stand on kind of thing. Um, But I think this this is where all paths lead in, in, you know, we talked about elders, but... um, I'm afraid it's a sort of an image of, of a circle of people holding hands. I mean, yeah. this is where, you know, a lot of, you know, John Lennon songs, love is the answer. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, it's easy to talk down that kind of stuff. And in the Twitter world or something like that, you know, there would be those that would say, you know, sycophantic X, mm. Y, Z. But, um, yeah, I think that's that's what makes most sense to me. Yeah. So it's a good place to end, really. We're not a circular firing squad. We're We're holding hands. Yeah, love it. <laughs> oh ben thank you so much this has been really great and i've really enjoyed where we've gone here so yeah. thank you very much andy it's a pleasure i really enjoyed it too hey so a huge thanks to ben cowan for being so generous with his time it was yeah, just massively fun to chat about all of that stuff. I could have, I could have just probably spent the whole day um, exploring different areas, and um, maybe we will. Um, I, it would be great to have him back and to kind of, yeah, maybe focus in on particular areas. 
um, in the future. So uh, do go and explore Ben's work at artthatmakesyouthink.com. Um, as well as his Ideas Worth Wearing shop, which you'll find on Redbubble. I'll put links um, to the, to both those things in the description uh, and also to some of the stuff that, that came up in our conversation. I think I've managed to uh, capture all the all the references, so hopefully uh, everything's there. If not, let me know and I'll add, add any links that need to be added. Um, yeah, Ben also writes a regular blog on his website, um, which he titles Ben Talks. Um, ideas worth sharing bit of a takeoff of the old uh, the old ted talks um you'll find that on his on his main website art that makes you think.com uh great and let me know yeah what you enjoyed about our conversation did anything kind of resonate or stand out particularly are there any questions that you'd like us to to maybe hone in on and explore in the future um if we if we arrange another conversation um uh, the best place to sort of continue this conversation um, with me uh, in a kind of online space is, is in the Haven. So if you come to the hyphenhaven.co, um, come and join the community there. We've got forums. Uh, we have regular kind of informal meetups on Zoom and uh, a gallery to share our, all of our own sort of creative niblets and nuggets um, with a, a friendly and encouraging community uh, of gentle rebels who uh, yeah, just loads of different backgrounds and uh, ways of expressing and processing and, and all of that stuff. So come and check out the-haven.co, uh, that's the-haven.co uh, to find out more. Uh, all right, I think that'll do us. It's been great hanging out, as always. I'll be back again next time with another episode of the Gentle Rebel podcast. Until then, do remember that you are an artist. The world needs your art. Now go and make somebody's day. Bye-bye.